Another rebound in a crowd by the Brock Ness Monster. Ooh, that would be Pedro. Ooh. Jim Bob Foley, holy moly. How about the Tasmanian Slovenian with the stop, drop, and pop? Tiffany Hop to the King's Herald Barbershop. You're listening to the King's Herald Show, a bi-weekly NBA podcast that covers all the ups and downs, ins and outs of your one and only Sacramento Kings. As always, I'm your host, Will Griffith, and with me today, writer for the King's Herald, my co-host, Tony Zipteris. Tony, how's it going today? Will, it's uh, it's going all right here in Massachusetts. Um, some sad Kings news today. I'm sure we'll get to it uh, very shortly, but I'll let you go ahead and start the show. Absolutely. He's a, he's a former Sacramento Kings head coach, GM, and color analyst, general manager of a WNBA champion, Indiana basketball Hall of Famer. He's the true pride of French League himself. It's Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, as always, absolute pleasure to have you on today. Well, it's great to be with you guys always. And uh, certainly, you know, basketball uh, during the summer, it's, it's not a lot to talk about, but we'll find something. We will find something to talk about today, Jerry. So this is, uh, as Tony alluded to, this might be the first time we've done it this way, but I wanted to make sure we had the time to talk about it from the very start. Um, some unfortunate news out of Sacramento at the time of recording with the passing of a uh, former Sacramento Kings assistant, Pete Carrill. Uh, this morning at the age of 92. Kochi was a, a college basketball Hall of Famer, uh, going 525 and 273 in 30 seasons coaching in the NCAA. And after making the jump to Sacramento under Gary St. Jean in 96, he was an integral part of, uh, of coaching Rick Adelman's staff uh, from 98 to 06 and then stuck around in Sacramento till, uh, till 2012. Jerry, uh, Tony and I can obviously speak at, uh, to Pete's impact from the fans' perspective about the Princeton offense, what that meant to the Kings and later into the league as a whole. But I, I want to start with you, if that's okay, because you can speak about him more as a colleague and as a friend. And so, any anything you, any thoughts you have on on, on Coach e today? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we we just we spent a lot of time together over the years. Uh, you know, just we take on the road, we had our daily walks, and uh, I always say that it's so enjoyable because I learned so much from Coach, e, you know, and uh, his stories and. Uh, you know, of course, I had a few stories, too, but uh, his were better. And uh, uh, he'd always tell me, uh, you know, we had a little signals that if we started to tell the same story to, uh, that we'd heard, you know, over to hold up two fingers so that we'd know to go to another story. And, and of course, Coach, I always told Coach, I said, some of his stories were so good. I, I didn't hold up two fingers because I wanted to hear them again. <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, yeah, I, you know, the, the, I will say this about his basketball wise and and, uh, and and I really believe this uh, the the term basketball genius is really overdone and overrated and uh, but he was I mean I guarantee you I, I've never been around a, a basketball and I've been around them all yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really I, I know them all uh, but but I I really put him right at the top of any of any list because uh, I always said I mean uh, Mike Krzyzewski or, or Dean Smith or Roy Williams or Bobby Knight or even John Wooden or whoever could not have done anything better or more at Princeton University than he yeah. did. It, it was not possible to do more and better. And so uh, uh, that to me kind of summarizes him as a head coach in that regard. And then as an assistant, you know, I always used to just marvel at the uh, of course, I'd watch all the practices and there, and he'd always come over and, and point out little things that, that I thought, you know, I thought I was paying attention and I had, 
understood the game a little, but he, his, his uh, ability to see the nuances of the game and, and the little things that can make a difference. I, I've never been around anybody uh, like that. He, he was just the best uh, uh, ever. And uh, so, so there's that, you know, certainly he helped a lot of players uh, pro and, and college. And so we, we know all that, but, but uh, you know, just, uh, I thought amazing. And I thought his, his work with, uh, with Rick Adelman, uh, I think it's always been a little bit misdiagnosed, so to speak. Uh, it, it, Cause Rick never really ran the Princeton offense, but he ran a variation of, and, and Pete Carell was certainly responsible for that, but Pete would be the first to tell you uh, that Rick had developed his own little sections to it, the double high guys as opposed to one high, uh, for instance, you know. So uh, so it was a case of, uh, uh, in my mind, uh, Gene, uh, just a great head coach and at that time, and, uh, and certainly Pete in his role uh, really uh, was, was a, I think, a, you know, a, a big help as far as developing the offense and developing development of players because uh, uh, coach Carrill is one of those guys and we talk about a lot, but uh, he'd, he'd tell guys stuff they didn't want to hear. Yeah. You know, we, you know, you got too many of the, the butt kissers that uh, are always telling these guys that, Oh, you're great. You're the most wonderful thing and blah, blah, blah. Some of these guys need to be told, that, Hey, uh, you're doing it wrong and you need to do it this way. And, uh, that, and, and Pete would do that. You know, I've heard him do it. And, and I know that there were times when the, the, the Webbers and the, uh, and the Devots and pages didn't want to hear it. Sure. Uh, didn't want to hear it, but, but they knew he knew. <laughs> and that makes all the difference. Uh, I always say when, uh, you know, when players know that, you know, what you're talking about and certainly, uh, Pete did, and uh, even if they didn't want to hear it, that sometimes eventually it uh, they'd make the adjustments and all that. So, yeah, I could uh, I could talk about him for hours, but but I mean, really, the, at the end, uh, I just say, you know, '92, he had a marvelous life, a marvelous career, made many many friends, and uh, you know, uh, you know, just not much more you can say about that. We we you know, very few people. Uh, are honored uh, uh, to have a life like that. And in my case, I was really honored, uh, uh, honored for me to get to know him and learn from him. Uh, I'll cherish it always. Absolutely. Jerry, were there any specific memories? Uh, we got a lot of questions about this. We, we posted a question about basically saying, hey, anyone want to ask a question to Jerry today? And uh, we didn't quite see that the news had, had, had come across the, the wire just yet. And we were absolutely inundated with questions about, about Kochi. And um, most of them just said, hey, let Jerry talk for as long as he wants about it. But <laughs> I, I guess I was curious. Uh, we hear a lot about the stories from, from the golden years, but do you have any specific memories from his time maybe before the greatest show on court? Anything from those early years of basketball? Well, one thing that always struck me, I remember the first day, uh, that Coach Carrell was hired to, to join uh, Gary St. Jean's staff. We were in a summer league, I think in I think in Utah, but it could you know could have been somewhere else. I don't know, but but anyway, the very first day he got there and the and the practice was over, and uh, first thing he did, he grabbed Corliss Williamson, and uh, basically said, here, we're going to go to work here and took him up to add an area there where he could work. And I think work cordless for about a, 
hour and 15 minutes, <laughs> you know, working on it, working on his footwork and different things, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, I think I, I think I see, you know, I mean, and, and, and Corliss wasn't really thrilled with it. And, you know, Corliss is all time good guy. I mean, you can put him right at the top of any good guy list, but, uh, but, you know, uh, cause I talked to him a little bit afterwards and I said, well, how'd that go? Corliss said, man, I was tired, but he said, you know, I, I think, I, I think this is going to be good for us. You know, I think it's going to be good for us. And, uh, you know, and that was kind of the, the general uh, gist of things, I think, uh, with, with, with uh, coach Carell like that, but that, that struck me. It's like, talk about a guy, uh, okay, coming to work. Well, he went to work, you know, sure. I mean, it, it, to me, it kind of summarizes a little bit of who he was and, and why he was able to do what he did. Sure. Was there anything after the time Rick Adelman had left, you know, in those, in those last few years of him being in Sacramento, obviously him having helped develop the culture that the Sacramento Kings was, and then sticking around after, after the, the high point of, of the Sacramento Kings, is there anything you remember about him in those last few years before he, he left in 2012? Well, I, I will say this. I, I think it, it got a little tougher for him. You know, he, I don't, uh, as much as he, he, he purely is one of those guys that loves the game. And, uh, but I, I do think it got to the point where the teams just weren't that good. The players weren't that good. And, sure. and, uh, and so I, I think, or, you know, he was always trying to find a, a, I think a little bit better niche or different way of uh, helping out. And, you know, because he, he was always about trying to make things better. And, 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 you know, and I think it was frustrating for him, like all of us to where, yeah, but it's not getting better, <laughs> you know? And I mean, that, that, uh, so I, I did see some of that. I mean, not that he was, a, uh, you know, I mean, Pete uh, was a positive guy. I always, always say he, he always thought he could, uh, the thing I loved about him and, and, but I also thought was kind of a weakness. You know, he's one of those guys that, that, that really firmly believed that, you know, you could, teach a player to do anything. And I always, one of my big arguments with him and we'd have some fun, but I, I said, you know, he'd always was convinced Jason Thompson could be a small forward. And I said, oh, wow. I said, I said, coach, he, he, he never going to be a small forward. In fact, I don't think he'd play power forward. I think he might be a backup center. And I said, that's what he, but that's what I always thought that, but, but that was him, you know, he just thought, well, you know, he really, you know, if he learned to handle the ball a little better and blah, blah, yeah, I said, yeah. And if pigs could fly, they'd be, wouldn't be pigs, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but I mean, I, 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 I thought that was great. I mean, he always was looking for ways of, of saying, well, that if we could teach this guy this or teach this guy that, that he could find a way to have a better career. And, and he's right. Uh, you know, probably the cynic and me at that time was a, yeah, but some of them, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so <laughs> the Jason Thompson at small forward thing was always a, was always a point of contention with a lot of Kings fans, I feel like. And it was yeah. one of those things that, you know, you always wondered where it came from, like whose bright idea was that? Well, I guess it's one of those times where a genius and madness, they, they run a very fine line together. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those ones. <laughs> for us, huh? Well, I, I think that's one of the things that, that, you know, with him, he, he was been so much success of uh, developing players to play, certainly in college where you had to kind of, he never could recruit very many of the big names. And so he had to have to, to uh, 
teach them and basically make them better players and make them fit better different spots and to, to for it all to work. And so I think he, that was uh, kind of the issue, but I always kidded, I used to kid him. I, I'd say, coach, you, you might be the, you know, maybe the smartest basketball man in the history of the world, but you might also be the worst judge of talent uh, <laughs> at the NBA level. <laughs> but, uh, it's a, but I mean, but he was a, you know, what he, he really, he was a coach. That's what he was. He was a coach. He was a teacher of basketball to, to basketball players. That, that's exactly what he was. Uh, didn't have any, you know, certainly didn't, see himself as anything else. And I, I always thought too, you know, the times we had uh, spent a lot of our walks, it is amazing how much he talked about. And of course I tend to do a little bit of the same, uh, talked about the experiences at the lowest levels. You know, he'd always talk about his high school coaching and stuff and and uh, you know the relationships he had and that's probably more about junior college because, you know, like he said, you just, he said, you know, I just was felt I was way more important to the players at that time than than, than at any other level. And I said, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand. Uh, you know, the higher you go, the 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 less things, you know, are, are the same. But anyway, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, some of those days, if, if I ever, ever write another book, I'd have to have a Coachy Carell chapter. That's for sure. Oh, maybe two nice. <laughs> maybe two yeah. tony what about you uh, just uh, from the fans perspective what do you remember about coach Correll and uh, and his impact with the kings well i'm glad to hear jerry say that he was actually a basketball genius because i know i mean i was maybe 10 years old during during that run and i remember going to school uh, as a kings fan in massachusetts always running in nba circles you know playing basketball with friends playing high school ball uh middle school those little travel leagues and everything. And we'd argue about basketball. I was a Kings fan. I'd, I'd go at them with, you know, well, we have Chris Webber. We have Lottie Divac. We have this person, that person. And my cousin, for example, was a huge Mavs fan. He'd go like, oh, we have Dirk. And my little trump card would be like, yeah, well, you guys don't have Kochi. He's like the mastermind behind the whole thing. I didn't know whether he was or he wasn't. I was like 10, 12, 15. I don't know what his impact was, but I'm thankful that, that I had that, that card to play with people. And I don't know, 30 years later to hear Jerry say he actually was the, the guy I was arguing he was with people that had no idea who he was, but it was a nice, nice card I could play when they're like, who are you talking about? I don't know this person at all. I'm like, no, you don't know. His name's Kochi. He's behind the bench every night and he tells the players what to do. And he's like, a, he's like the evil mastermind behind the whole thing. So I guess he really was that guy. Um, and that's who he was to me as a fan, you know, having that guy kind of in the shadows, uh, the guy who was like the genius, you know, he, he played that role for me as a kid, as a basketball fan, um, watching this team that I loved and, and having this, I don't know if it was like a, a patriarchal figure is like the perfect example, but just this old, older wise man who, who was teaching all of these young players um, how to play like a really beautiful brand of basketball. And, and it turns out he really was that guy. So that, that's, that was coachy to me. Yeah. I, th I think there's a, there's just some, some memories even from as far back as that, that I'll, I'll like, one of them to me is Jeff Petrie always standing right where he was standing every single game. It's just one of those things that are, it's burned into my mind, like mm -hmm. a screensaver or something like that, or, a, or a screen that's been on too long on the same image. And the other one was, was just coachy standing there sometimes. I, I don't know. Sometimes it was behind the bench. Sometimes it was, you know, you'd watch those little, like, you know, 
news things for like, oh, here's the practice and here's where they're getting ready for the season this year. And it'd always just be kind of this little slight man standing there with his arms crossed doing something. And always like, oh yeah, he's, he's the guy. Like that's, that's the brain behind the organization. That's the, that's the secret sauce that, you know, I agree with you, Tony. I made those same arguments to an entire family of Lakers fans and they'd laugh me off because they have some of the greatest coaches of all time and assistant coaches and everything else. But it's like, now we, we have that little guy over there that you see in the game sometimes in the background. And that's the guy that's, that's pushing them forward. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was too, you know, and I always say too, that a lot of people would ask me, say, well, you know, coach, you seem like such a nice uh, grandfatherly guy. I said, he, he is, he is. I said, but when he talks to players, there ain't no grandfather in there. <laughs> you know, he, 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 the, the real, the coach comes out. I mean, it's no nonsense. It's straight right to the, right, right to it. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the side that uh, as fans, you can't see. Sure. Jay, I'm curious yeah. only because you're a silver Fox yourself. I've always kind of had this theory with coachy that like, it was like, because he looked kind of grandfatherly, looked kind of older, he kind of looked like a pops you know, that he, maybe the, the players treated him better or he could get to them a little bit better because he was just this uh, wise figure or something like that. And I'm sure for you, maybe it was the same. I'm curious, though. How much did they uh, how much did they neglect you because you had white hair or or treat you better because you had wh- white hair on top of it? I, I think as a I think in general, uh, players respect older people. I do. I mean, I, I think that's been their background where they've been yeah. coached uh, through the years by different uh figures and and also so i think they probably most players certainly in my case they gave me a lot of probably more respect than i I deserve but in the same way with with coach to a degree but but i'll I'll say this i think i've always felt that in general uh players will will listen to you if they believe you know what you're talking about you know if you can give them good information and they think they're getting good information that'll help them play and perform, uh, you you'll you'll have no trouble keeping their attention, and uh, and and don't bullshit them. You know sometimes you you're sure. going to have to hurt some feelings. You know, and I never really, sure. it, I mean, I never had a problem with that. And I know I know darn well coach never did. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, no, you're gonna you know you're gonna have to break some eggs now and then, and uh, yeah. and you know just uh, yeah times you you know I always say you got to little come to Jesus moments and hurt some feelings. Uh, and if you can't do that, or you're not willing to do that, uh, they'll see that as weakness. You know, they'll see that as weakness pretty quick. And so, you know, but at the end of the day, the, the reason Coach Grill was such a, 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 besides his genius mind, I mean, he was the natural leader, you know, and that's what you have to be. You have to be a leader of men. And, uh, and you can't be a leader of men if men don't follow sure. you. <laughs> so, and, and uh, like I say, so, you know, he was, uh, he's one of, one of, you know, one of the best of all time. Absolutely. I always felt like you and uh, uh, guys like you and Pete had a kind of a natural advantage because if Brad Stevens cussed me out in a practice, I think I could get him. Like, I think I could, I think I could, I think I could kick brad stevens ass i probably couldn't but i mean if i was an nba player assumedly i could mm-hmm. but like you jerry I, i'd immediately be the bad guy i'd I, like i'd immediately be thrown mm-hmm. out of the league they'd be like oh he just he just kicked that poor old man's ass and and he'd be out of it even though you're ornery too like i know you could take me too but it is one of those things like, no no here's the difference i'll tell you i'll tell you the difference i i mean no you had no trouble kicking my butt but here's the difference <laughs> Uh, you'd have to fight me, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's what, 
what they know. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the players, uh, you can't, you, you know, that you, you're willing to, to go, to go to line, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you can kick my ass, but you're going to have to, yeah. and, uh, it ain't going to make you look good, but, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll roll around here in the mud, the blood, the beer, if we need to. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, so sometimes that's, you know, and, and like I say, once it all comes down to, to guys, uh, feeling people out. And I mean, I think probably everybody that's ever played sports, whether it's teammates or coaches, you, you teachers, you, you know who you can't bullshit, yeah. you know, you know who you can't bullshit and you, you learn that pretty quick. And so, uh, but I always remember Jeff Petrie talking about a lot of, uh, uh, you know, of course they had a great relationship after he played, but he said it, it was pretty stormy during my times playing. <laughs> he said, he, he said, you know, he said, I thought I was, you know, kind of, kind of invented the game. I was a big star at Princeton and Pete Krilk, you know, he said, Pete would always uh, kind of remind me that uh, he was, the, he was the guy running the show. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so it kept me in line. So there's, yeah, there's, that's all part of it, but uh, yeah, just uh, a lot of, a lot of things that go into it, but yeah, but probably uh, the being, uh, being smaller, probably it, uh, most of the 20, two or three year old big guys, they, they know, they know that there's not really an advantage of punching a little <laughs> white haired guy. But I, like I told him, I said, well, I lost my four front teeth from fighting. And so I, uh, I, I know how that goes. And, uh, you know, so if you want to knock some more out, you just get on with it. That's what I want people to take away from this. If they take any, away anything from this podcast is that I thought I could fight Jerry and Pete. Anyway, that's, that's it, right? Yeah. Well, you, oh, you could have, I think, <laughs> I, I think you could have got a win, but probably, I don't think I'd have won, it, but I think it, it would hurt a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It would have probably not benefited your career. Let's put that way. <laughs> that's called a Pyrrhic victory. If there ever was one. Um, so how much of a lasting impact, and this is a question for each of you, how much of a lasting impact do you see uh, today in uh, in the way Coach Krill uh, game planned in, in today's league uh, and, and the way offenses are run? Well, I think I think it definitely had an impact, obviously not just the Kings teams, but I think you see, you know, the five-man game, the, the Warriors are a good example. You know, it's not the same Preston offense, but basically getting movement away from the ball, back cuts, uh, playing without a low post center. Uh, I think that was one of the real, real things that uh, started other teams looking at right away was, well, we don't have to play with a guy with his back to the basket in the low post. And, uh, you know, cause now, now all of a sudden you, you started getting back cuts and guys moving without the ball better. And, and uh, so I, and I think made for a better game. Uh, you know, I think the, and coach and I talked about this a lot is that, one of the things that made his offense, the way he ran it at Preston, so great, partly was the the, the shot clock, you know, wasn't either, didn't have a shot clock or was, uh, and he, like he always said, boy, if you could run that, they had, didn't have a 24 second clock, you could really do a lot of things with it in the NBA that you, that you couldn't because it just took too long. And that's where probably Rick Edelman, I thought, really created some situations where uh, you get into it quicker and you, and you, you had quick hitters, try to try to get your stuff done quicker. And, uh, so, but I, I think together, you know, they, honestly, they were ahead of their time in the NBA and other teams, I think, uh, copied variations 
which is smart. Yeah, I, I was watching uh, some interviews um, with Kochi today just to, I don't know, refresh my memory. I don't know. You do that when someone passes, you kind of go back into the archive and, and look at stuff that maybe you hadn't in a while. And he mentioned that thing about the shot clock, about how uh, the, the Princeton offense was different in an era without it. And it made me think how exhaustive it would be to try and defend that without a shot clock, uh, all, those, all those picks and cuts. Um, but it's still, I would say to this day, it's still the basketball that I want to watch. You know, every team doesn't do it. Every player isn't capable of playing that way. There's a lot of isolation still now. Uh, I it's still think it's the most uh, watchable form of basketball for me today. And I think that would be the thing that, that has carried on the most. It's still to me and a lot of people like the most entertaining, like basketball at its peak is, is that sort of movement and anything that, that relies too much on ISO, which a lot of teams still do is, is like the least, I guess the least pretty form of basketball to me. So I'm still chasing, chasing that. Hopefully the Kings will play a little bit more like that uh, moving forward. Yeah. They, uh, I think the league, you know, and then, like I say, it's too many teams. And that's why it's great to see somebody like the Warriors win. I think is that, you know, everybody's kind of, yeah. you know, high pick and roll, uh, kick it to the corner, uh, you know, basically ISO try to break somebody off the dribble, you know, it's like, uh, uh, uh. last question for you guys. Um, where are we putting the coaching memorial? Hmm. Hmm. I kind of like the idea of the, of the uh, chair behind the bench. Yeah. I'd be okay with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be okay with that. Okay. We agree. All three of us, the chair behind the bench, we're doing it. Well, I just want, you know, just to wrap up there, Coach Grill is absolutely a Sacramento legend. And uh, as you can tell, uh, uh, Pete's going to be missed. We appreciate his time in Sacramento. So there was actually some basketball news in the last two weeks. We're squeezing uh, blood out of rocks here. But the Kings signed some, uh, some camp fodder with uh, once and future King uh, Kent Bazemore, uh, point, point guard uh, Quinn Cook, and shooting guard Sam Merrill brought in to compete for, uh, for any roster spots that may still be available. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go with a question that Greg asked uh, today, uh, Jerry, uh, and, I, and we'll go to you, Tony, as well. What are your thoughts on the end of uh, end of the roster camp battles that are taking place between uh, like Delhi, Quinn Cook, uh, Sam Merrill, and uh, guys like Kent Bazemore, Okapala, and uh, Monaki? Well, uh, for me, I I probably not going to get all fidgety about it or excited. I mean, I think they're. I like I kind of like Quinn Cook as an addition. To be honest with you, I I think he can score the ball. I think he's a guy that you could, in my opinion, you could put in a game if you had injuries and think that you might uh, get some production and maybe even help you win. I, I'm really not that high on anybody else. Uh, I think they're I think they're good additions if you want to try to, you know, for the coach to kind of create his own culture in camp. And I think that's fine, uh, but uh, I'm probably a little less enthusiastic than that just reading most of the uh, the Kings Herald comments and all. I know everybody falls in love with whoever ain't playing, uh, you know, every year. Uh, but Absolutely. but uh, I I just I'm just not quite ready to, to spend much time worrying about it. To be honest with you, I think it I think it's fine. I don't have any problem with any of it, but. Uh, but the idea that somehow I'm supposed to like these guys better than Kyle Guy or Justin James or somebody or James Ramsey, well, I don't really. So, uh, <laughs> so okay. <laughs> I mean, like I say, I think Quinn Cook, the times I've seen him, looks like a guy to me that can play in the NBA. Uh, the other guys, I'm not sure can. If any of these guys are playing heavy minutes, 
you have a problem. Uh, that being said, it's a, it's a more interesting list to me than we've seen in other like end of roster training camp battle type players. Like the Kings are going to actually cut NBA players this time. And they really like oftentimes when they're cutting in training camp, it's guys that are, are never going to be in the league, never have been in the league. And I think that's probably a Mike Brown connection with a lot of these players um, is, is him bringing in some guys that he's familiar with. So I don't know. Again, if any of these guys have a major impact on the team this year, minutes wise, it's probably an issue. Um, but I don't hate the list. And that's kind of all I can say about it. I mean, we'll see who makes the cut. Uh, they have some roster spots available. It should make, I think, for a competitive training camp environment. And maybe Jerry will tell me that this is kind of fool's gold and, and, it, and it's not going to change anything. But when you have a lot of players who are kind of competing for their NBA livelihood, which again is not something we've seen in Sacramento. It's often been younger players who the Kings are taking a shot on that fill out these training camp spots. So you've got guys like Quinn Cook and Della Vadova and Bazemore, Okpala, and the guys from the Nigerian national team that Mike Brown is bringing in. These are these seem like a more hungry group of training camp bodies, but maybe I'm totally off base on that. Well, I, I would agree with you on to a degree. I, I think it will can lead to some real positives, but I think less so about talent, uh, quite honestly, than just the fact that these are guys who really, they know they owe Mike Brown and, and they're, they are fighting for any kind of professional basketball life. And so they'll, they'll bring a hunger. No, no, you know, if they don't, it's my God, what are you doing? But yeah, they'll, 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 they'll bring a hunger. And I think, in that sense, that's what Mike wants. And he wants, uh, the, you know, that guys he feels he's confident in his own mind that they can help change the defensive culture. I, I believe that's that's what he's going to get is, uh, like I say, I'll, I'll get excited about the talent sometime in January. If you don't mind, I'll wait till then. <laughs> So this is going to be another uh, episode, Jerry, where we, uh, we've solicited questions from our writers, from our readers, from our Twitter followers, just so that we get a chance to uh, not only get, get uh, them in on some questions for you, but also to preview that this is how we run our, our Patreon episodes, that uh, once a month we have a Patreon episode where uh, Tony solicits questions from all over the internet, and some of them get weird, and some of them get even weirder, and, and some of them are, are pretty boring, but we handle them anyways. And, uh, and so we wanted to give uh, folks a chance this summer to, uh, to, to have a little bit of access to you, Jerry, past the regular one question that we usually do. So we have some questions here from some writers and from some readers of, our, of, of the King's Herald. And uh, you, you can't pass on anyone. You have, to, you have to answer every single one of them that we ask you. Okay. And so if they get... If you get if they get weird, you, you just have to you just have to handle it, okay? Well, I'm weird, so I, uh, I should be able to do it. <laughs> well, we'll we'll start you off easy. We'll start you off with a former guest of the podcast, the Kevin Fippen. Uh, he asked, um, "What level of confidence does Jerry have that De'Aaron Fox can prove that he he has improved uh, play post trade? Is this the exception and not the rule? And with that in mind, how much of his past struggles can be attributed to the front offices?" inability to provide him a supporting cast that complements his skill set? Well, those are very good questions. I, I guess first to my level of confidence, can De'Aaron, in effect, make a real transition in his career, consistent, uh, better effort on defense, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I have confidence he can do it. Uh, now, uh, no question, he's got the ability to do it. 
So that that's a big part of it because, you know, in many cases, you're talking about guys who don't have the ability to do it. <laughs> you know, uh, they may have the desire and they, we just probably talked about some of them all ago uh, and they, and all that, but they don't really have the ability. Well, De'Aaron Fox has the ability to be a, a, a very good defender and obviously a terrific offensive player and, and a, a bit of, I think a bit of a leader. Uh, now, is he going to do it? I, I, I wish I could say, I know he's going to do it. I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance. And I also know if he doesn't do it this year, then that chip is uh, moving out to sea because uh, this is his year, De'Aaron Fox's year. I, and so, and I think he knows that. I really do. So, you know, the, all the chips are pushed into the, into the middle of the table. We, we'll see. And now, now the other part, I, 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 as you know, I'm old. As you get older, there's three things that happen. First, your memory goes and can't remember the other two things. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I can remind okay. you real quick. It's uh, how much of his past struggles can be attributed uh, to the front office's inability to provide him a supporting cast that uh, complements his skill set. Well, I, I think uh, that I would give him a pass to a small degree on that. I mean, you know, a, any player the better surrounding cast you have and coaches, your better chance for success. But uh, I think most of De'Aaron's issues are De'Aaron's fault. You know, I mean, start there, uh, you know, take it personal. Uh, Yeah, it would have went better for him with a better surrounding cast, uh, you know, but he's got to play with who's there. And if you're, and, and I think we know if you're really a, a world-class player, you, you'll you make everybody around you better. They're, it's not their job to make you better. Your job is to make them better. And so uh, having said that, I, I'd put, uh, you know, I'd, I, I'd, I'd be willing to blame the front office and coaching staff and ownership about 20%. And then I'd, I'll, give, I'll give Foxy the other 80. Sure. Tony, what about you? How much uh, do you think Darren Fox can prove that everything uh, about his play post-trade was the uh, was the exception and not the rule? I think it's got to come at the beginning of the season, and I've been saying this with Fox for a while now, and it's why I do put most of the blame, and blame is a weird word because Fox is a very good basketball player. Like most players don't even get as good as he is right now. So we're talking about blame for a player who's already like very, very good. He hasn't reached that level of being a great player or an all-star, all-star level player, and I, I do think that is still on Fox for the most part. We've seen him uh, for a few years now start off very slow and put up some insane numbers towards the end of the season when the games, unfortunately, just don't mean as much. So for me and Fox, it's it's I, I kind of echo what Jerry said, and it also makes me excited for the season because there are some legitimate stakes now. Like, this is the year for Fox. If he doesn't prove it this year from the beginning of the year. So we're going we're gonna to have an answer to this, in my opinion, like fairly early. He's got to be very good from the jump. And if he's not, the Kings has some difficult conversations to have. So I I do place, I guess a lot of the, again, I don't love the word blame, but I guess blame in this context on him for not doing it because he keeps proving that he can do it with subpar supporting casts and and, uh, worse level players in the second half of the season. He's put up some, he's had some crazy statistical seasons that look like an all-star 
you just got to go to basketball reference and make sure you're under like the post all-star break numbers, you know, and it has to stop being that way. He can't just be an awesome player post all-star break. He needs to be an awesome player the whole year. So that's what I'm watching out for is 82 games of really good De'Aaron Fox. And it's got to start from night one. Dutch Kings fan in the UK asks, uh, Jerry, what comes with developing a player and why do the Kings have a bad track record of player development in recent years? Were players like Ramsey, Thomas Robinson, Harry Giles, Marvin Bagley not talented or mature enough? Is it staff, scouting, staff turnover, lack of emphasis from the organization? That's a very fair question. I mean, I think it can be a combination of all that. I, I do think from a player development standpoint, you always want to look at the, the most important part of it is the player. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's easier to develop a player if he's really good. <laughs> and if he's not really an NBA level player, it's, it's a lot, a lot tougher. I've always said, you know, in college, you could always say, you know, if you really are developing a player, you might raise him a notch, you know, maybe from a, a low division one to a middle major division one kind of player. Uh, but you're not going to take the guy that's a low division one caliber and make him, a, a, you know, an all American. Uh, that, you know, just kind of that, it's kind of like education, you know, you can take a, a, a D student and maybe you can make him a high C student if he really wants to learn, but you probably have a tough time making him valedictorian. <laughs> I mean, I've always said, you know, that, that that's kind of where the, you know, you can see the sort of the fallacy a little bit of the of player development per se. In other words, if, if you could develop every player to the highest level, you know, there'd be 50 Michael Jordans every year. And I think we know that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, so, but no, I'm not copping out here. I mean, you take a Jameis Ramsey, uh, you, which I think has got some NBA level talent. So, so I'll start there. Uh, can, can he be an NBA player? Yeah, I think he can, and and I don't think he probably got everything he needed with the Kings uh, for various reasons. But I think it probably starts with, you know, cons- you know, my mind is consistent development play uh, coach, somebody that is working with him on a regular basis. The team itself sees a role for him that they want him to be able to fit. So you know, there has to be a kind of a. Uh, not just the player working to get better, but the, the team has to say, well, we want him to get better so we can find a role for him, blah, blah, blah. Well, if, if one thing doesn't, if one thing doesn't happen, then, then you're just ball tossing and butt patting uh, at some point. And, uh, and I think, you know, kid like uh, Ramsey didn't, it not all his fault at all, or, and not all the King's fault. Uh, but he can still make it back, you know, and, and, it, sure. and it gets back to what, uh, what they were asking about. Yeah. You, now, you know, you talk about uh, Thomas Robinson, uh, could he have uh, with better development, uh, could he have played in the league? And absolutely. I've always said that the problem with Thomas was he didn't see himself as he needed to see himself. You know, it's uh, sure. and, and that's no different than any other profession. You know, you've you've got a somebody wants to be a lawyer, but doesn't want to study law. Don't be surprised if they're not a good lawyer. Uh, sure. And uh, with Thomas, 
if he'd have just focused on rebounding and defense, he 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 would have played a long time and made a lot of money because he could do those things. But he thought he was Carmelo Anthony or somebody, and 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 I think we know by now that he's not. And and uh, several teams have, uh, and they went through the same thing. And so it wasn't just the Kings failed with him. Other the big failure was drafting him. Uh, it, so it really wasn't a, just the Kings failing to develop Thomas Robinson. Every other team did too. So, so there is that. So all I can say is, uh, yeah, you, uh, player development is important, but I, I'll tell you this, it's, it's the fourth on the list of most important things, you know, for talent, drafting, trading, free agency are all more important than player development. I mean, but, it, but, it's, but it's important. Tony, was there a guy in particular that you were most disappointed about that didn't develop? Either, either for positive or negative reasons that you just you just wanted him to be the guy that you hoped he could be, and then he just never reached that. Uh, I think I'd go with Willie Colley Stein for this one, only because I can sometimes understand why a top draft pick busts. Like you talk yourself into potential, and you need this guy. You, like you draft him with the assumption that he's going to be everything for you. This is going to be our star. This is going to be the guy. So if it's really easy to not live up to that potential. Like for Thomas Robinson to not be an all-star, I could like, that's an easy potential to not live up to. It's hard to reach that point, but you draft a guy like Willie Colley Stein. And to me, like what he needed to be was so clear. He was not drafted to be a star, to be like an all-star. He was drafted to be a very good versatile defender, maybe even a defensive player of the year candidate to be a role-playing center, to be a, a rim protector for a team that hadn't had one in a very long time. And he was in my opinion, like a hundred percent capable of being that. Um, so those are the instances where I guess like as having a draft pick bust is more frustrating to me because the lane for him to be exactly what the Kings needed him to be seemed fairly easy. I guess like he had all the tools, he was doing it in Kentucky and it just didn't work out. And that, that one kind of sticks with me above the other ones because it just seemed like such a obvious fit for what he needed to be. And he just, he didn't want to be that guy. He wanted to be Kristaps Porzingis, and he he was never going to be. So there was just a very clear disconnect there. Yeah, that's a great point because to me, uh, Willie was very similar to Thomas Robinson. You know, I mean, it's just in a sense that if he could have really did exactly what he was capable of doing yeah. and, and relished that role, he he would have had a lot of success. But he really did not want to do it, and 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 really. That's kind of goes back to the player. Sometimes there, there are people that just refuse to be developed, <laughs> you know, and I think that that happens in every profession, you know, and, and I think a lot of times we as fans, we don't realize that. No, that that's in every profession that you have people that really just refuse to to uh, fit the niche they, they, they can have success in. They see themselves differently, you know, and, and Willie was certainly one of them i think it's hard for me as an outsider to blame a lot of things on player development because i assume that nba head coaches like i bet there's not very many if any bad player development coaches in the nba these are head coaches that want to do well they're going to hire good coaches and also ownership doesn't worry about who the coaching staff hires in player development but what ownership can do is force a general manager to draft the wrong players. Like it seems like that's a much easy, easier place for an organization to make a mistake is on the drafting side. When you have ownership wanting things for ticket sales or marketing or one reason or another, they can influence 
drafting way more than I think ownership would influence like player development. That seems like a pretty insular like NBA operation where these are NBA guys who know how to coach, who know what they're doing, who ownership wouldn't even really touch. Whereas that scouting department and who you draft, that seems prime for ownership meddling. And I think that's where it breaks down more than anywhere else. Uh, yeah, I think, too, you look at some franchises that seem to have a better a record of that, the stability they have, you know, whether it had been Utah for years or San Antonio. I mean, it, you pretty much got the same people doing the same jobs. And uh, yeah. and when they when they draft somebody, they, you know, they, they they're going to spend the time to decide if they're good enough or not. And then, you know, they, they'll move on from them, too. Uh, you know, it's not just, I think a lot of times the Kings fans, you, you know, we have a tendency to remember the guys that, that don't make it. Uh, well, you know, every other team's got a bunch of those guys too. <laughs> and so, but uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, that's a tough, tough call there for guys. I mean, I always thought about, you know, guys back through the years, guys like Dante Green should have been a terrific player, but he wasn't. He's a likable guy. Just simply, he just didn't have the, the motivation, really, to, to work as hard as he needed to. You know, and it wasn't like he was a disrespectful or anything like that. It was just, yeah. just as, you know, hey, this is the way I play. This is who I am. And it's like, yeah, this is who you are, and this is where you're going type thing. And, and I always said that's one of my frustrations with Walt Williams, who I, a really likable guy. <laughs> you couldn't find a better guy like teammates liked him should have been a major star i mean he really had it but walt was lazy <laughs> in my opinion you know walt was lazy he could have quite a bit of success to make a lot of money doing playing the way he played and uh and that's uh you know that you you see that in every every profession as well you know it's like, yeah, well, yeah, I'm hitting about half lick, but I'm making enough. My family's doing okay, you know, that sort of thing. So, so anyway, enough of that. That's, but, but it's, uh, it is, it is frustrating. I, I always said that was one of the biggest jolts to me when I came to the league. I assumed that every player loved the game, you know, as much as I did, or, or, you know, or I just assumed everybody, oh wow, and they worked so hard to get to the league. Well. Some had, some really loved it and just worked their butts off. And others, they were there because they were really good. Sure. <laughs> it was easy for them. It was easy yeah. for them. And, and some that was easy for couldn't adjust to make to, to the far part of it being hard for them. And uh, so, yeah, so, so it, it, there's a lot of different things involved. I got one little final story that I don't know if it even applies here, but. I always remember Kevin McHale telling me, uh, uh, you know, like he said, he said, you know, he said, one thing I did learn, he said, in being in Boston, he said, I would have been an all-star anywhere. He said, but playing with Bird made me a Hall of Famer because he was on my ass all the time. You know, he said, I wasn't the kind of guy to work that hard. I didn't want to work that hard. I didn't want to be under pressure. You know, and, and I mean, that's... Uh, you know, I, I thought that was, you know, really honest, but I, I think that's, you know, we're kind of getting back to Fox or different guys. I, I mean, I think that comes into play at some point. Somebody, you know, you, you know you're going to have to put them under some pressure and, and some, some will, will, will spit the bit and some won't. 
And so that's During what you Mickey want to Ronan find out. Writes, how many of the 17,317 fans um, have told you that they were there that night at the uh, December 27th, 1988 game? By the way, I was there and I thought Jerry was just being melodramatic due to horrible calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, that is great. And I'll tell you, I, I think I probably had about 50,000 or so, uh, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah, and that, that was, uh, and I think that's what the referees thought because I had a kind of reputation of jerking their chains a little bit and they'd get, it, you know, they'd get pissed at me and because I was always bitching. I was, you know, I was begging for calls because we needed every call. I mean, I knew the referees were basically doing a good job, uh, but when you're, you know, there's no room for error. <laughs> you know, when, uh, you know, I, I'd always, I, I used to kid the officials they, those days, they had two uh, would do the game. And I, before the game started, I'd several times I'd go up to them, I'd say, you know, is there any possibility you guys would consider cheating <laughs> these other guys? And uh, they say, no, we're not going to do that. And I said, okay. I thought it's worth asking about, you know, give, give it a shot. You know, best chance we got. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that night, uh, yeah, it was really a strange thing because I'd been on a diet uh, for a while. And of course, uh, just not sleeping well and things of that nature, drinking too sure. much, by the way, too, uh, all those things. So I'd been getting dizzy. The, for about two two or three games before and I'd, I'd get real dizzy but i'd go i'd be able to go sit down you know so I, you know typical guy you know how men are we're all <laughs> dipshits and i said well all right that's nothing i'll shake it i'll be okay you know i didn't tell anybody or anything and then but this particular night i was it was a bitching i remember it was a uh called a foul on joe klein on the other end of the floor and and probably did because he's clumsy he probably did foul him but i didn't think he did so i was charging out about half court there and yelling something and all of a sudden i i, I started seeing these green squiggly things in front of my eyes and uh and you know i thought holy cow i better i better go sit down and i turned to go sit down and, and that's really the last thing i remembered until i remember the trainer starting to give me was going to give me mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and I woke up out there and I told him, I said, don't you put those <laughs> lips on me. I mean, I, so, uh, so that was about that, but no, I, you know, that was kind of that. I, I mean, it was, uh, I'd been doing commercials for a, a, a diet product. And I can't remember for sure as the Weight Watchers or I don't know one of those. And as, and I always thought it was amazing. As soon as that happened, they they dropped me from commercials. <laughs> they, they, and, and I and I really believe that the product sure. had something to do with it, you know, and, and just uh, you know the 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 whole thing. But so, but Harold Presley hit a shot at the corner to win win the game. I told Harold, I said I went a lot of trouble to make you a hero. And uh, I, I was going to ask Jerry. <laughs> I was going to ask because I pulled up the I pulled up the game and I I looked through an article that the LA Times had written about you. Yeah, I wanted to see if if you guys ended up winning that game. And by God, you guys yeah, won that sure game. Sure did. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, and and a good friend was coach of uh, Portland, Michael Mike Schuler, and he got fired about a game later. And uh, uh, yeah, and he had always said, yeah, oh, what. Well, you know, 
you're the cause of it. And of course, he, he came to work. He was an assistant with Gary St. Jean for a couple of years. Good guy, good coach. And I said, well, I, I certainly, uh, that part I certainly apologize for because you didn't, you didn't deserve to be fired if that was the reason. I don't think it was actually, but it probably did uh, add to it maybe. But yeah, that was a little uh, little bit of experience. And I don't know if that answers even the, the question, but yeah, they, I mean, I, it, it was kind of one of those things that uh, a lot of people faint and that's really basically what it was, but most people don't faint on national TV. And, uh, uh, and I was, yeah. so that, that kind of got a little more attention than it ought to. And I had to really made me, because I, I, I pretty much knew I hadn't had a heart attack because when I came to, I know I was red and everything, but I didn't have any chest pains or anything, you know, so I kind of knew. And uh, so, so I like I say, the best part of it was I, besides winning the game, I, I always say that I got out of the parking lot for anybody else, you know, in the ambulance. So I said about the fastest I ever got out of that place. <laughs> uh, reading the nice. official news story, uh, uh, team physician James Castle said that Jerry, when he regained consciousness, which was about 30 seconds, reported he suddenly felt dizzy when he jumped in the air and landed on the ground. Jerry, how high do you think he jumped in order to pass out? That, you got to have been pretty high to have lost oxygen. To your yeah, well, actually, I don't think that was it. I, I mean, I pretty much remember that that part is that I don't think I jumped, but I had kind of ran in the direction official and, you know, and making a fool of myself, which I did a lot. Sure. And I was good at it. <laughs> uh, but uh, then, but like I say, then I, I really felt it and I, and I turned. And I always used to uh, squat in front of the bench and, and I'd get up. And, and that uh, in those days, coaches did that a lot because they didn't want to block fans from behind. Yeah. Nowadays, uh, nobody, nobody seems to care. Yeah. This block, you know, uh, but, but that's why I did it. I didn't want to, you know, I mean, didn't want to block fans' view as much as they paid. But 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 my squatting and getting up may have led to it to a certain degree. But but I yeah anyway yeah right. but uh, and answer your question yeah there's probably been fifty thousand. It's one of those things. And I got it you know around the league everywhere I went for a long time. I always remember Jack Nicholson for uh, shortly thereafter we went to play the Lakers, and uh, he told me he said he said Jerry you you can't take this job that serious you know you gotta <laughs> calm down. I said, I said, damn, Jack, I want you to coach these guys. See how you do it. <laughs> he just, he just laughed. I thought it was good. Uh, that's great. Okay. So I've got another one from, um, from a Dutch Kings fan in UK who, uh, who asked another good question here, Jerry, our cat has been sitting under the car a lot lately and she ends up covered in grease. Do you have any advice? That's a great point there. Well, I guess you could uh, get, get yourself a cat cover. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, cats are going to do that. Yeah. That's for sure. We, we've always had cats. We've lost our last one, unfortunately. But finally, we just kept them indoors. And that's to be what I'd recommend, have indoor cats. Uh, they'll stay cleaner. And, and uh, I won't say they'll uh, like you anymore because they're cats. You know, they'll, <laughs> they, pick, they pick and choose who they like when they like you and all. But uh, yeah, we used to have indoor outdoor cats and, and, and there's all kinds of uh, problems that way. But uh, yeah, with your, you know, unless you want to put a, put something, cover your car, but that'd be my best advice is try to, to try to make them either indoor cats or, or put your car somewhere they can't get under it, I guess, or 
And maybe why is the hell your car leaking? What's, <laughs> what's going on there? Uh, Jesus, grab it. You know. Fix the car. That's the problem, huh? <laughs> fix, fix the damn car. So... Uh. Well, that that's going to wrap it up for us, Jerry. I want to run to you first for uh, for the Reynolds wrap up today before we uh, before we officially uh, call it quits on on the episode. So, what do you have for us this week? Well, I would just, of course, I I, I get a kick out of the King's Herald so much, and I, I like I say, just love the writers and, and all the comments. I don't agree with all of it, of course, but I was uh, somebody just getting sometimes kind of get bent out of shape a little bit several people sometimes I'm thinking about it and I always remember a statement my dad made when I was a kid and of course we didn't have squat but he always said he said you know money isn't the key to happiness but if you have enough money you can buy a set of keys so just <laughs> so just just keep that in mind that's all you know don't 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 make it a big bigger deal than it is <laughs> Well, for everyone here at uh, the King's Herald, I want to thank you for uh, listening to another episode of, uh, of the show. We are, we're going to head right on over right now to a, a Patreon episode where we're going to answer even more of your questions. If you asked a question today and you didn't hear it, you're probably going to end up hearing it on the, uh, on the other show there uh, behind the Patreon wall. If, uh, if you haven't ever heard our, our Patreon questions, uh, uh, come check us out. It's like $5 a month, I think, Tony, is our, is our, lowest, uh, yes, sir. Is our lowest payment. And you get to hear... You get to hear Jerry compare players to McDonald's value meals. You get to Jerry gives relationship advice. I mean, we, we really, we really make sure that Jerry has to answer the weird ones. So uh, we'll see you guys over on the Patreon show. And uh, thanks again for listening. Jim Bob Foley, holy moly. How about the Tasmanian Slovenian with the stop, drop, and pop? Tiffany Hop with the King's Herald Barbershop. <laughs>